Hey guys, before we get started, this is a little trigger warning that this episode contains a deep conversation around suicidal ideation. If you or someone that you know is struggling with suicide, make sure you see our show notes for suicide hotlines. A mental health comedian. Let me say that again. A mental health comedian. A comedian that makes jokes about some pretty serious topics. Ever heard of him? His name's Frank King. And y'all listen, this week just might make your brain happy. Welcome to another episode of Happy Brain. My name is Heather Parody, and thank you for joining us as we explore the fun side to mental health by digging into the simple hacks and fun tips to make your mental health journey more enjoyable and your brain a little happier. What's up, y'all? Welcome to today's episode of Happy Brain. If this is your first time listening, I am so grateful you are here. My name is Heather Parody. I am your host, and this week we have something extra special for you. If you're new around here, every episode we look at a fun, outside-of-the-box way to keep your mental health journey fun, enjoyable, with the intent of normalizing conversations around mental health and hopefully helping you get some habits that you enjoy So when inevitable stuff happens in life, we can be more mentally strong and prepared for that. Now, that's what we normally do. This week, we are stepping away from our normal format to bring you the story of Frank King. Again, he is a mental health comedian who makes jokes about depression and suicidal ideation. Yes, jokes. And why does he do this? Well, he says that you can make jokes about communities in which you belong. He's very open about his own journey dealing with severe depression and suicidal ideation and a family history of that. And so we're going to break up his story over three parts this week. This is part one. So you're going to hear his story. And again, I wanted to do this because as Frank talks about, people do not talk about suicide. And maybe just maybe if we did a little bit more, we could prevent the loss of so many lives and help people feel less alone. With that being said, I want you to check out the show notes. If you or someone you know is struggling with suicidal ideation, suicidal thoughts, those hotlines are in the show notes. No shame. Reach out. It is a strength. And my last disclaimer, let's go ahead and give another disclaimer. (laughs) Frank is pretty colorful, y'all. Pretty colorful. So you got some young kiddos in the car. This may not be the episode that you want to have blaring out. We talk about some very sensitive subjects and some colorful ones too. But before we get started, I know I got all of y'all's interests up. I would love to hear from you. We have an Instagram page at happybrainfm. Follow us over there and go into the DMs. Send me a message. Let me know if you have a mental health tip or technique that you think is interesting, fun, and outside of the box. I would love to hear from you. But let's go ahead and get into this part one with Frank King. I open up with this question. He says that comedians are an excellent choice to talk about depression and suicide. And I wondered why. Well, comedian in general, I believe, is a good choice because the world's first comedians were the court jesters, and their job was to speak truth to power on behalf of the powerless with humor. Mm -hmm. I believe I speak truth to the power of mental illness on behalf of those often powerless in its grip with humor. And I believe where there's humor, there's hope, where there's laughter, there's life that nobody dies laughing. And the reason I'm a good choice to talk about it is depression and suicide run in my family. It's called generational depression and suicide. My grandmother died by suicide. My mother found her. My great aunt died by suicide. My mother and I found her. I was four years old. I screamed for days. And I've come close enough to killing myself. I can tell you what the barrel of my gun tastes like. So I think think that makes me a, a, a spoiler alert. Uh, I did not pull the trigger. 
and I have a joke that follows that a friend of mine had never heard me say that out loud. He was at my keynote. He came up afterwards. Hey, man, how come he didn't pull the trigger? Hey, man, could you try to sound slightly less disappointed? That's when they start laughing. When they realize this is not your average suicide prevention keynote. When did you decide to marry those two? Because I think there's a lot of people who struggle. This is a stereotypical thing that comedians, a lot of comedians have dealt with a lot of trauma. And that's when they become comedians. That's kind of stereotypical. But marrying those two worlds together, was that always the intent when you decided to be a comedian? No, I just want to be a comedian. Starting in fourth grade, told my first joke. Fourth grade. Fourth grade. Wow. Yeah, the teacher, uh, the kids laughed. The teacher was so so hysterical. She had to excuse herself to go to the teacher's lounge. Do you um, remember I, what you said? Oh, yes. Um, tell me. <laughs> I can. It was um, everybody in my family is horribly nearsighted. It's called myopia. And I even wrote a joke about it. I think my, my folks are descended from the people of myopia, which was an island that was conquered over and over because they never saw the enemy coming. Fourth grade. Yeah. So I, I, don't, I don't want to wear my glasses. But, but Mrs. Dark knows that I have to wear my glasses because even in the front row, I can barely see the board. So she decides, in her infinite wisdom, as my mama would say, to bring me to the front of the class, have me take out my glasses, facing away from the class, put my glasses on, turn and face the class, and sort of desensitize everybody at the same time to Frank and his new glasses. Well, back then, Heather, there were no fashion frames. If they're fashionable now. The Ray-Ban black plastic now it's a you know now they're fashionable. Back then, and women had cat eye glasses in a couple of colors. That was they need to come back. I would wear that. Oh yeah, uh, and so I didn't want to wear. Them. So she got me in front of the class, turned me away from them, put my glasses on me, turned me back, and looked down at me and said, "See, you look intelligent." And I said, "Yes, that would explain all the laughter." And when they laughed and she laughed, I thought, "I'm going to be a stand-up comedian." Wow. Twelfth grade, we had a talent show. Nobody had ever done stand-up before. And I had a writing, you know, burst a couple of weeks prior. And I thought, I'm going to do stand-up. And I won. And I said to my mama, I'm going to be a comedian. And she said, son, you're going to college first. I don't care what you do when you get done. You can be a goat herder for all I care. However, <laughs> you are going to be a goat herder with a college degree. So I went to Chapel Hill, got a couple of college degrees, moved to San Diego with my high school and college sweetheart. And there was a comedy store there. I started selling insurance for her father's company. But the comedy store being there with open mic night was the beginning of the end of my insurance career and my first marriage. Oh, God. Yeah. Uh, On stage, my first open mic night, April 1st, 84. Mm. Inside my head, about halfway through my routine, I heard this. You're home. No, really? Yeah. It's like uh, the calling in that television show, The Manifest. It was just a voice that said, you're home. Wow. I've only heard it a couple of other times in my life, but every now and then, it, I think three times it's spoken to me that way when I was someplace that apparently mm-hmm. I was supposed to be. Interesting. What do you think that voice is? I, I think it's intuition. Yeah. I ignored that uh, intuition and married my first wife. Wonderful woman, but we had nothing in common. But you know what they say, opposites attract. She was pregnant. I wasn't. Oh, no. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. We had no kids. Uh, but it's a great joke. And it's pretty good. <laughs> I bought it from a friend of Brett Butler, female comedian Brett Butler, uh, when I was working at Atlanta in a comedy club with her. You don't know, I was on the road for 2,629 nights in comedy clubs. No, I did not. Yep, seven years and change. And my lovely wife came along for the ride. She was my girlfriend when we left town, left San Diego. I said to her, you want to come along? I'm going to go be a professional comedian. You can come along just for the ride. Figured she'd go, oh, hell no. And she goes, yeah. (laughs) So we've now been married 34 years. That's amazing. 
I did for comics. Yeah, that's about three marriages, three comic marriages. Because we talked about off air comedians, you know, they have some mental issues. A friend of mine has a saying: the two kinds of comedians: diagnosed, undiagnosed. Sure, sure. <laughs> so, to traveling around and doing those those uh, routines, vesting your entire life in comedy, is that mm-hmm. how you coped with your own mental health issues? Uh, after fashion. I was I had a great life and don't remember being depressed uh, all the way through high school. I loved high really? school. Really? I almost stayed an extra year. Back then, you could actually stay an extra year, take another class in Spanish, typing. I wish I had because I typing would have been a real bonus right now. It you could college. stay an extra year. And I, I can't tell when you're joking on your serious. No, I know, right? <laughs> I had trouble dating for that reason. Let's go out. Oh, you're so funny. No, I almost did stay an extra year in high school. I liked because by That's the time nice. you're senior, you, you, know all, you know the ropes. You know your way around. Okay. And I really did trigonometry. I want to take another year of trig and some more Spanish and typing. And uh, you can't do sports because you've, you know, you've, you've burned your time. But I could be in the school play. Anyway, in college, my girlfriend went to, an, went to another school way, way away. And I didn't, I was probably depressed, but I just thought I was, you know, lovesick. Because she was mm-hmm. going to college in Arizona and I was in North Carolina. It didn't rear its ugly head until I married. And then my first wife, comedy wasn't her vision for me. And I, in my fourth TEDx talk called Suicide, The Secret of My Success, Dead Man Talking. What a title. Oh, thank you. Uh, that title, by the way, got me the TED without an audition. They just said, no, no, you're on. I bet. <laughs> yeah. Well, and the, what happened was I realized that it, I was married and miserable, although she's a wonderful woman. I was selling insurance, great business, but not for me. And I was I was not doing comedy because she didn't like the idea that I'd go to open mic night. Mm. And I thought, you know, if I don't change something, I'm going to kill myself. Literally, kill myself. Wow. And how old are you at this point? 23, 24, okay. 25 maybe. And so I said, my second thought was, well, wait a minute. I could divorce my wife, quit my job, try stand up. If it works, and I think it will, uh, great. And if it doesn't, hell, I can still kill myself. So wow. that's how I got it. Well, I mean, I had nothing to lose. I could yeah. put it all over all the dice. And I really did believe that's where I belonged. When I got on stage that night and I heard the voice inside of my head, you're home. People ask me, they go, tell me about yourself. Well, I'm a comedian. No, no, not what you do, who you are. Well, at the risk of being redundant. I'm a comedian. Every fiber in my body. I can teach you to write stand-up. I can teach you to perform stand-up. I cannot teach you to process the incoming information the way my strange brain does. Interesting. When did your routines become about this? Well, I was a stand-up in clubs for about 10 years. Did some radio. Yeah, yeah. Did some radio in Raleigh. Because they were hiring mid-90s, hiring comics to be you know, sidekicks on morning shows. And I took a number one morning show in Raleigh to number six. Cool. <laughs> if it was six and got to one, it'd be great. But one to six. Oh, one to six. Was, I thought oh. you said 10 to six. <laughs> no, one to six. Well, from first place to sixth place. What did you do? <laughs> well, you know, a friend of mine goes, you didn't drive into the ground. You drove it in the middle earth. Uh, the show never gels. Mm. We, we, the host and I got along off air, but on air, we we're like cats and dogs, and it just never. There's never any chemistry, which is fine. But by the time I got done with that, the comedy club boom had busted, and but my act was very clean. So I thought, well, I'll do corporate comedy. Pays better, better hotels. So from about '95 to 2007, made crazy money. Five thousand bucks for a 45 minute comedy keynote wow. because HR will pay a ton. Wow. Yeah, they, they, every now and then somebody complained. Forty five thousand dollars for 45 minutes of jokes. No, you don't get it. Right, right. You're not paying me the jokes I tell. You're paying me for the jokes Hours I tell. Hours of writing. 
Oh, don't tell. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I told. I'm telling you, like, you're paying. So when I get done with my job, you still have a job. That's fine. Because you give a comic a microphone, they can do some hardcore damage in a very short period of time. I've had friends who've done it. Anyway, so I did that till set 07 and then 08 and then the recession. And business dropped off 80%. And my wife and I lost everything we'd worked for in 25 years in a chapter seven bankers. And that's when I learned what the barrel of my gun tasted like. Because I had a million dollar life insurance policy. I was worth more to her dead than alive. And with suicide, there's a sense often of burdensomeness. Right. She'd be better off without me. Right. They'd be better off without me. The world would be better off. So I was going to kill myself. That's when I learned what the barrel of my gun tasted like. However, as luck would have it, having sold insurance, I knew that my life insurance policy had a two-year suicide clause. So I called my agent to find out how long I'd had it. And he goes, he says, and I quote, 22 months. And oh, no, no, do not do it. He knew exactly why I called. I wouldn't call him to find out how long I had right. it. I was right. calling to get permission to kill myself. Right. I talked to him after I did my first TEDx. Because I put him in it, told that story. And he said, Frank, yeah, when I when I was talking to you, I knew I had to say something. So I said a quick prayer when I realized what you were up to. And I and I just said, don't do it. I hope that was the right thing. I said, Graham, with depression, thoughts of suicide, it's often not the right thing. It's that you said something. Yeah. It's not that it has to be the right thing. It's just that you said something. That is a powerful statement to take home with you guys. Make sure you connect with Frank over at mentalhealthcomedian.com. And again, if you or someone you know is struggling with suicidal thoughts, make sure you check out our show notes. All the links are there where you can find somebody to talk to. And until part two coming up in a couple of days, whether you are moving past what people think using a square squad, reigniting your imagination and finding time for play or listening to a mental health comedian. We hope you take a moment for yourself today, my friends, and keep that brain of yours happy. Thank you for listening to another episode of Happy Brain. If you enjoyed this, make sure you hit that subscribe button wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you have an extra second, leave us an honest review over on iTunes or your Apple podcasting app. And until next time, my friends, keep that brain of yours happy. Happy.